What's up, everybody? How are you doing? Welcome to this episode of the Tattoo Historian Show here, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome. I really appreciate you being here. My name is John. I am the Tattoo Historian. And this week, I have uh, an amazing talk that I had with Dr. Tim Cook. He's at the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Widely respected historian across Canada and uh, in other parts of the world. And I was so happy to have him on the program because uh, I admire his work. I've read many of his books. And we talked about mainly about the book entitled The Fight for History, 75 Years of Forgetting, Remembering, and Remaking Canada's Second World War. It was published in 2020. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, You can find the rest of his books on Amazon. He has a ton of them. And I was so happy to have him on to discuss this because we wanted to talk about the Second World War and how that impacted post-war memory. Uh, Veterans had one way of looking at the war. Civilians had another way. Politicians had a way of looking at the war. It's similar to what we see today. And I thought it was a great thing to have Tim on to discuss this because we historical memory is consistently changing, constantly changing, excuse me. And uh, that evolution impacts us each day of our lives, whether we realize it or not. So historical memory is so powerful. I wanted to have a powerful voice about historical memory on to discuss this. So here is Dr. Tim Cook discussing historical memory and his book, The Fight for History, 75 Years of Forgetting, Remembering, and Remaking Canada's Second World War. Get your copy now. I am so thrilled to be joined by Dr. Tim Cook. Our uh, discussion this evening is called uh, Canada's Second World War Experience and Historical Memory, and we're going to be going over Tim's newest book and some of his other works, public history, and so much more. You never know what direction we're going to go on here, so this is this is going to be great. But Tim, thank you for, for being here. Thanks, John. Uh, great to be on your, on your program, and um, hello to everyone out there. Absolutely. Uh, for for the introduction here, if anyone does not know who uh, Tim is, uh, Dr. Tim Cook is a historian at the Canadian War Museum. He was the curator for the museum's First World War Permanent Gallery, and he has also curated numerous temporary traveling and digital exhibitions. Uh, Tim is the author of 13 books, and they have won the C.P. Stacy Prize for Military History twice, the Ottawa Book Award three times, the RBC Taylor uh, prize for Literary Nonfiction, and the J.W. Defoe Book Prize twice. His latest book is The Fight for History, 75 Years of Forgetting, Remembering, and Remaking Canada's Second World War, which I have my copy right here, and I'll have a link later for anyone who would like to purchase a copy of this book. Uh, in 2012, Tim was awarded the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal for his contributions to Canadian history, and in 2013, he received the Governor General's History Award He's a frequent commentator in the media, a member of the Royal Society of Canada, and a member of the Order of Canada. That's a lot of stuff. And I know I didn't touch like, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very small part of your bio, Tim, but, uh, right. but that's fantastic. And, and I'm so happy to have you on uh, because uh, I've, I was actually introduced to your work 
probably, well, about a decade ago or so, I read your two-part series on Canada in the First World War. And uh, I was like, wow, this is amazing reading. And then you had a two-part series on the Second World War. And uh, yeah. John, I, I said I, I would was... never write uh, a two-volume history again, back-to-back, -back, after I did those <laughs> two volumes uh, at the Sharp End and Shock Troops. They uh, yeah. They were they were my third and fourth books, and um, okay. there was you know a kind of shift there as we were talking a little bit about before. Uh, my first two books were were academic books, and and they're they're still read. But uh, uh, I'm very lucky to work at the War Museum, as you were kind enough to mention there. I see myself as a public historian, and when we opened the museum in 2005, I remember thinking, "What do I do now?" I mean, we just spent three years. It was an incredible. A journey to be on. Really, I, I felt quite honored to to be the First World War historian. I, I created the First World War Gallery, as you mentioned. But then it was, where do I go from here? And I had spent all that time thinking about the First World War. And so I wanted to write those those two volumes. And I, I wrote them for all Canadians because, uh, mm -hmm. you know, um, I had a feeling at the time that academic historians were, were really writing for a narrow uh, group themselves for the most part. And being a public historian, I just uh, been a part of this process to open museum, which would be visited by 500,000 people a year. And it very clearly Canadians and, you know, Americans and others, we want our history. Um, but often those who are producing the history, writing the books, don't do a great job in telling telling the stories in a way to really connect with readers. And so I, I set that task for myself, and and uh, and that sort of put me in a different um, path. And um, I've been publishing books uh, since. That's awesome, Tim. I I have to know though, and and a lot of people always want to know this. Where did your love of history start? What was the spark that really got you going? Yeah, great question, John. Uh, I'm lucky to have come from a family of historians, both of my parents, uh, PhDs in history. But of course, like most high schoolers, I, you know, I wasn't much interested in, in history. It was hockey and rugby and, and other, other pursuits. Right. Uh, but, you know, my parents took me to the Western Front when I was 17. And uh, I remember we, we had done France and it was one cathedral after another and sort of a, a, a truculent uh, teenager, not really interested in it. But then we went to Vimy. And we went to the Somme and we walked those silent cities, those cemeteries where young uh, Canadians and Americans and British lads were buried. And it had an impact on me. I was 17 at the time. I was looking at, at boys who were buried there who were 16 and who were 15. And uh, I came back with a new appreciation, you know, having walked the battlefields with, with my dad, with, with my mother, my brother. Um, you know, I didn't come back and start writing history, uh, but I began to read a little bit more. And I was lucky then to go to Trent University in Peterborough, had wonderful professors there. Again, went not thinking I was going to do history, but I majored in rugby for two years and then realized I'd better I better do something a little more important. Uh, and then, you know, set off on a, on a different trajectory. It's a little it's a little bit easier on the collarbone. Than, than rugby. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, I think some of my old uh, my old uh, teammates are probably a little surprised where I ended up. <laughs> yeah, you're you're the second person in in like the last three interviews who said I wasn't even thinking about history as a major. I was just going to college for something else, or going to university for something else, or had my mind set on maybe pursuing something else, and then it I just fell into the historical path. Yeah, for me it was it was the writings of um, 
starting off with the poetry of the First World War and then the prose writers, Siegfried Sassoon, Wilfred Owen. Um, and it there was a connection made there through the, the powerful eyewitness accounts. And then I, uh, I moved off into the letters that were written by the soldiers, uh, incredibly uh, powerful and poignant, uh, other times mundane and banal. But if anyone knows my books, I rely really heavily on those eyewitness accounts. Uh, I'm a former archivist. Um, I've read tens of thousands of letters. I think it would be fair to say now in a 25-year career. I've spent 25 years interviewing veterans, listening to their stories. And when I write my histories, my two volumes that you spoke to, the two volumes on the Second World War, uh, my book on Vimy, or Secret History of Soldiers, it is driven by those soldiers. I let them speak. It's not just a series of quotes lined up one after another or anecdotes. There is analysis. There, there. You know, I have a PhD in history. I've read most of the books, but I. It's really important, I think, to try to make these connections with readers. And some of the most gratifying um, emails and letters I receive come from teachers who say that they use my books to help. Um, get young people interested to help them make those connections. Um, young people themselves. Uh, I've had a, I had a ten-year-old writing to me for a while. He'd read he'd read my two volumes on the Second War. They're a thousand pages, wow. and I remember thinking, "This is fantastic! What a great young guy!" And uh, and, it, and it ranges all the way up to Second World War veterans. I've I you know received a, a letter handwritten from a Second World War veteran. 95 years old, telling me how much he enjoyed um, uh, reflecting upon his service more than 75 years ago. And he and he told me as well that he was the last of his comrades who was still alive. Wow. And, and and that struck me. Right. We have we had about one point one million Canadians who served in the Second World War in uniform. We're down to fewer than 20,000. And so we're 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 losing this generation. And I wonder where it will take us. Yeah, I've wondered that too, Tim, because uh, last I believe it was last weekend, uh, there was a huge World War II event here in in central Pennsylvania that uh, my friends and I have gone to for years. And I remember uh, 20 years ago, they always had a hangar at the airfield where it was full of vets and you could go in, you could speak to them. They had like a six or eight foot table and they would sign stuff and you could converse with them about their service. And I remember being packed with veterans 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And now there may have been five or six in there now. And it's like all these oral histories are, are being lost unless someone was doing the, the good deeds of writing it down or doing a, an interview or something like that. And I, that's the next book, you know, that's the next series of something that could be getting lost. Yeah, I think you're right, John. And it struck me when I wrote the, the latest book, the, the Fight for History. Um, you know, I'd written those two volumes you spoke about, The Necessary War 2014, uh, Fight to the Finish in 2015. And I thought I was done. It was a thousand pages. It covered just the sweeping campaigns that Canadians fought in uh, on the oceans around the world, uh, in the air, on multiple continents, fighting in Hong Kong and Dieppe and at Sicily and through the Italian campaign and the D-Day landings, fighting through Normandy, clearing the Scheldt, the final battles into the Rhineland, the air campaign. Um, you know, I thought I had written it. 
Mm-hmm. And when those books came out, as as you noted, they won awards, they were bestsellers, but I was traveling the country speaking to Canadians and they said, you know, thank you for writing this. This is, this is great. But I, I didn't know these stories. And that struck me, you know, fairly hard. I, I've devoted 25 years to this and I'm not a normal person with regards to history. I'm lucky to work at the War Museum. I spend most of my time doing history. Mm-hmm. But people were saying this, that you know, they they were interested in World War II history, but they read American history or German history or Russian history or the war in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing growing up, they saw the films, American, British or German films, uh, never about Canada. And I thought, isn't that a bit strange since Canada really was an epic contribution? As I said, 1.1 million Canadians served fighting around the world. Uh, an important ally, junior ally, but an important ally to the United States and Britain. And yet so few Canadians knew about this. So I wanted to know why was that? Why had we done such a poor job in this country in telling these stories? And so that's really what the focus of the book is. It it looks at that narrative arc and tries to explore um, how I, growing up in the 80s, could basically be taught almost nothing about the Second World War, and even at university, very little until I really went into senior courses, and I made that conscious decision. And um, it's a fascinating story. It's a bit of a sad story because it's really a self-inflicted wound. Um, but the good news is, in more recent years, things have improved. Canadians have done a better job in telling these stories, paying attention. But as you have said done so while the veterans, the last of them, are passing away. I mean, average age of 95, the next five, six, seven years, we will lose most of them except for a few outliers, I think. Mm -hmm. Do you think for some, uh, before we dive deep in the book here, do you think for some because um, they're coming around to understanding Canada in the Second World War now, or, or trying to at least, and trying to embrace it, do you think a, too many Canadians are now like, oh, I wish I would have talked to my grandfather about this before he passed. And now I lost that. Or or do you think maybe they're going to dig a little bit harder into their family history now due to books such as yours, because social memory mm-hmm. is constantly changing? It is. Yeah, um, it's a good point, John. It's, it's always shifting. It's always taking on new meaning with each generation. That, that's the nature of my book is to look at the the layering of the history but you, you hit it um, directly. I mean, I've had a lot of Canadians come up to me and, and thank me, book signings. You know, I really appreciate what you've done here. I have a better sense of what my dad did or my great uncle or my brother or whatever it is. Um, but they also almost always say, I wish I had asked more questions. I wish I'd had the grammar or the language to speak to them I wish people often say that my dad or my great uncle had been able to talk about it because I think we now have a much greater sense of things like post-traumatic stress disorder or just the challenges of service personnel when they come back to to tell their story. And that's a part of my book as well, um, that uh, it hasn't always been easy for uh, veterans, uh, in the case of this book, the Second World War generation, but I've been lucky to speak to Korean War veterans and uh, peacekeeping veterans and veterans of the Canadian Forces and Afghanistan veterans. It's never been easy for veterans to talk about their story. It takes time. And that's a part of my book as well. Mm-hmm. That's almost a universal thing uh, where yeah. a lot of vets or, or they're, they know, they quote, know who they want to talk to about it. And they know yeah. who they don't want to talk to about it or are comfortable yeah. with speaking with someone. 
yeah. uh, and maybe not someone else. Uh, you, you talk about uh, the complicated, contested, ever-shifting meaning of the Second World War for Canadians and uh, whether they were veterans or civilians. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you mean by that, Tim? Well, contested in so far as that it, there's a struggle over history and um, the title of the book matters, right? The fight for history. I see history as a fight, as a struggle, as a clash, um, that there are always differing groups and differing opinions. And that's good. You know, we have these fierce debates. Um, what's not good is silence. Uh, what is not good is apathy. What is not good is the failure to tell your story or even to make the effort. And mm -hmm. and that's what I found with the book. It's, you know, the subtitle is is forgetting. It starts with the forgetting. And Canadians forgot their contributions very quickly. Um, you know, we've talked about the 1.1 million Canadians. Um, one of the things that happened in Canada, like the GI Bill in the U.S., is that the, the state treated veterans fairly well, much better than First World War veterans. Um, Canadian veterans came back. Um, the economy was booming. Um, there was trade with the United States through wartime industry. The state gave um, uh, training to veterans to put them in jobs. There were land grants. About uh, 45,000 went to university. Significant changes in Canadian society emerged from the Second World War, the, the birth of uh, the, the welfare state and, and other aspects. Um, so the, the veterans were treated well. They went into jobs in Canada. There was this massive baby boom, all these babies born. My parents are from that. Mm. Um, and, and the country changes. What we weren't doing was looking backwards. We're looking forwards, forwards into the prosperous 20th century. And by not looking backwards, we didn't write the proper histories. As I talk about in the book, we didn't we didn't create television shows or films. Um, and, and maybe most importantly, we didn't create uh, separate memorials. And so as right. as the generation of veterans moved forward, as the new generation came in the 50s and 60s, they had no connection to the war. And of course, it was in the middle of the Cold War in the 60s. You have the rise of youth power in Vietnam, uh, other things like that. And the war was left behind. And I, I think the, the book... It's never easy, John, to, to try to explore why an event doesn't happen. It's a lot easier to try to track the intellectual history of, oh, A connects to B to C, and that's how we get here. Right. Right. Um, I was looking at and thinking, isn't it weird that the Second World War is just not represented in Canadian culture or politics or film or books? And I thought the absence is very strange. So how do you explore an absence how do you explore and give voice to a silence? Um, and I, I think I have in this book, I've found unconventional sources, Legion magazines, and sometimes the popular press and speeches and uh, veterans them, themselves. But it's, um, it's an interesting story of how quickly Canada pushed the war aside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you pointed something out in the book that I, I really... Uh want to touch on and from someone who's visited usually every summer when there's no when we don't have a pandemic going on uh was the fact that every little town that i went through had a cenotaph for the great war and and it almost seemed like that was uh where where your eyes were drawn to as far as historical memory and then if you went maybe around the back it was second world war additional you know, or an addition put on the back of it, whether it be actually engraved in it or a tablet that's been bolted to the yeah. cenotaph. 
and that, that's something I was really interested in before I cracked into your book was the memorialization, because for Americans, we're having this big thing with uh, memorials now and monuments. And I, and I didn't put two and two together until I read your book about how uh, sometimes the Second World War was uh, many Canadians didn't know how they wanted to to do it because of the cenotaphs were one one way. But then living memorials were another. And that was something totally new to me. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, John, it's a, I think it's an interesting part to the book. Because, uh, I'm really a scholar and historian of the two world wars. And, um, you know, I've written many books on the First World War, including my book on Vimy in 2017. And that really tried to look at why Vimy was such a powerful martial symbol in Canada, right? It's, it's on our $20 bill. It's in our passport. Um, it's taught in all the schools. Um, there were even hats, you know, saying the birth of the nation. That's a phrase you often hear uh, among some groups in Canada. And the idea that that Vimy really propelled us forward. And for your for your watchers here, Vimy was that four day battle from the 9th to the 12th of April 1917, when the Canadian Corps, four divisions strong, uh, surged up the ridge, which the Germans had held really from almost the start of the war, and drove them back. And it's become, you know, a really powerful legend in Canada, a bit like I suspect Gettysburg uh, is in the United States, or uh, we know Gallipoli in Australia, that, you know, countries, they pick battles, um, and these battles become symbols for other things. Think of the Russians with Stalingrad. Um, it's a little more difficult for the French to find successful battles in the 20th century, but, you know, Verdun sometimes is there. Um, you know, so Canada's Vimy, and, and really Vimy writ large, it's the First World War. This is seen as a really defining moment in Canada, Canada Confederated in 1867. So 50 years later, we have the First World War, this titanic, traumatic event in our history, a country of 8 million, one in three adult males is serving, 66,000 were killed. Um, that's a staggering uh, number, and it really transforms Canada. And it's, it's very clear that the First World War is seen as, as something where the country is forever changed, nearly torn apart through conscription. But, John, it didn't leave a lot of space to talk about the Second World War in that way. Right? What is the Second World War? If you if you've been born fifty years, uh, you know, if you've been born in in the First World War, you can't be born twice. Now, there's lots of legacies from the Second World War, but one of the challenges is is the memorialization. As you talked about, we built thousands of memorials across the country, every city, every town, every village. There was a memorial, partially because of the the terrible trauma of those losses, and they were in places, public places of prominence, as you mentioned. And then in 1945, as the, this new generation of veterans came back, there was a real question, and I talk about this in the book. What would we do? Would they build you know, 4,000 more memorials? And, of course, people said, well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, we have this memorial. Can't we just add the names of the fallen from the Second World War to it? And that's ultimately what many communities do. And instead, as you alluded to, they, they created these functional memorials. They created libraries and gardens and hockey arenas and swimming pools. And these were, you know, these were sites of living uh, energy and places in the community. And they often called them a, um, a, a commemorative center or um, something along those lines. But the Legion, the, the, the largest body of organized veterans said, yeah, it's it's good to build a library, but it's not a sacred space. It's it's not a, a place where people will bear witness and come together. 
and and they were right. Um, you know, a hockey arena is is a good thing for the community, but it's not a sacred area. Right. And um, so I, by not having those different memorials in the communities, I argue that the Great War continued to have a dominating space. And, and in the book, I also look at how veterans coming back accepted things like Remembrance Day, and they accepted the poppy as emblems of remembrance. But the one thing they wanted was a new national memorial in downtown Ottawa. Uh, our national memorial was uh, built in 1939. And then these veterans come back and say, it's too closely linked to the First World War. Again, that idea of the dominance of the First World War, the Great War. And the government of the day denied them this. And I, I've really uncovered this story. And I argue in the book, if there had been a separate World War II memorial, I, I think it would have had a stronger place. There would have been a, an anchor there in the memorial landscape for other generations. Uh, that didn't happen. And I argue to the detriment of the of the really kind of understanding of Canada's contributions during World War II. It's amazing how much the Great War still impacts uh, how we see Canada from the United States perspective. Because when I told people in my grad school that I wanted to go study the First World War, they're like, well, go to England or Canada. Right. And, 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 and that was the thing. And I was still like, well, if you want to stay World War II, go to Canada. It was, you want to stay the Great War, go to, go to Canada. Yeah. Uh, so it's still kind of that way, right? Where people just automatically, especially with the poppy, like you say, yeah. and stuff like that, it yeah. still harkens back to First World War. And then when I would speak to some of my, my friends about Canadian involvement in Second World War, it immediately goes to Dieppe. Or yeah. it goes to some other kind of thing that went horribly wrong. Yeah. And it's like, why aren't we looking at what positive, if you will, things yeah. uh, occurred at that time where it was a victory or it was something else? It's not glorification, but it's like you can't always look towards the terrible things yeah. that occurred. Yeah, you're exactly right, John. And even if we were to take those two events, because uh, Dieppe was um, the, the main battle that Canadians knew, and I think everyone else, Americans and British as well. Um, Vimy, a clear-cut victory, uh, where our national memorial is today, still in France, still bearing witness to the, the contributions, the service and sacrifice. And Dieppe, a, a horrible slaughter uh, on one day in the war that went terribly wrong. Um, why not the Battle of the Atlantic in the Second World War? I mean, 100,000 Canadians served in the Royal Canadian Navy, 12,000 served in the Merchant Navy. This is the vital lifeline to Britain to keep Britain in the war. Uh, American and Canadian war supplies sent, uh, uh, sent across the Atlantic. Nobody talks about it. Why not the 100,000 Canadians uh, who served in the Italian campaign uh, in a series of really important and victorious battles? Nothing. Uh, D-Day, I think many Canadians don't know that the 3rd Canadian Division landed on D-Day, and I know your, your Project 44 guys have been doing some great discussions there, but not the Scheldt campaign. Probably the most important contributions of the Canadians in October, November of 1944, clearing the Scheldt region, absolutely crucial to keep the logistics flowing for the Allied forces, completely unknown. And so the battles, again, to come back to the earlier conversation, the battles you choose tell you something about the social memory. And in, in the book, I look at the strange hold that Dieppe had on Canadians and others as well, really to the detriment of understanding the larger contribution of the war effort. Mm -hmm. And um, there are reasons for that. 
Dieppe was a, a horrible mistake. There's always been a conspiracy element to it because records were either destroyed or not created. Mountbatten's involvement, um, uh, the idea that, you know, the, the losses there contributed to the D-Day landings and the success. There's all kinds of stuff there. But again, it was around defeat. And I, as I write in the book, um, by the early 1990s, that's what Canadians knew about the war effort. The Canadian war effort was one of defeat and disgrace. And, and I write in the book, there was no other country in the world that turned the victory around and, and, and made it into this very strange defeat that it was not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that too compelled me. Uh, and there was a really important film that came out in 1992 called The Valor and the Horror, a three-part film where veterans for decades had been saying, you have to do a better job to the state, um, you know, CBC is our, our, our uh, major broadcaster. You've got to do it. You have to tell our story. Where are the documentaries? Uh, and then when finally the NFB, the National Film Board, and the CBC finally make a film, it reinforces this idea of defeat and disgrace. And to the point where they picked one battle in Normandy, and the one they chose is the Battle of Verrier Ridge, which some of your, your watchers will know was, it was a clear-cut Canadian defeat on the 25th of July. But it's the only real defeat in this campaign that involves the D-Day landings and holding off the 12th SS panzer attacks and then slowly moving forward and the capture of Khan with the British um, and, and the defeat um, there at Verrier Ridge. But then moving forward and, and ultimately, if you had saw, seen this film, you would have thought that the Allies lost the Battle of Normandy, which we know they didn't. Um, so it really, it hit a low point in the early 90s, an absolute uh, disaster in my mind. Is there a clear cut difference in how it's perceived from just after the war, let's say, if, uh, you know, during the baby boom years, like, uh, you know, let's say 1945, 1950, for example, and then how it's seen in the 1960s during the Vietnam era, because we see that in the United States where we see uh, the anti-war or the uh, the cost of war thing pop up a lot more when there's another conflict going on. And Canada obviously goes into the Cold War along with the rest of uh, the rest of us uh, against uh, the Soviet Union. Is there a shift in that way or is it kind of consistent throughout these these periods? Because you talk about how when you were a kid, you, it still wasn't being yeah. discussed. Yeah, it's a good question, John. And I I think, you know, in the immediate post-war years, 1945, 46, 47, a number of journalistic histories came out. They were bestsellers. And, and so people wanted this. And the only real histories produced were by the Army, the official histories. And they're, they're very good by Colonel C.P. Stacy. And yet they, they were not bestsellers in any sense, you know, and, and, um, and, and Canadians were getting their history in other places. And then, as I argue, because of the, those last, so within maybe four or five years, um, we move forward. We're in the Cold War. Uh, we're in a period of great prosperity in Canada where um, there's the Korean War from 1950 to 53, where about 27,000 Canadians served, but it's, it was largely forgotten. And we move forward into the, into the 50s and 60s. And the same thing happens in Canada where there, there is a real strong anti-war movement and, um, and veterans and members of the Canadian forces have told me in the late 60s they couldn't walk outside in a uniform without being you know, verbally uh, assaulted, I suppose. And um, so 
without the memorials and the history and the films and the documentaries, there was nothing to hold on to is I guess what I'm arguing. So then by the next generation, the sixties and seventies, it's really adrift. It's unmoored. And, and that continues up until the nineties, uh, that real low point. And, and then it, surprisingly changed and it changed with the 50th anniversary and and that was really important in 1994 and 95 important for the united states as well to re-engage with its world war ii history uh you know uh, key key events um uh, celebrations commemorations thousands of canadian veterans went back on their own dime because they would have been in their early 70s at this point and they were greeted as liberators uh, there were thousands of cheer, cheering French uh, citizens and the next year in the Netherlands, the Dutch who had never forgotten huge parades. And this was all broadcast live in Canada. And it was a sea change because uh, Canadians, uh, two things, they kind of woke up and realized, who are these veterans? Right? The, you know, we have veterans. How strange. I thought we were a nation of peacekeepers. Hmm. Um, of course, we have a proud peacekeeping tradition, but we fought a lot of war in our history. Uh, and our whole country has been defined by war. If you think of the 17th and 18th century as well, and uh, six wars in the 20th century, uh, 10 years in Afghanistan. So uh, we're not a country that has not been without war. Uh, but I argue from that key, those key anniversaries in 1995, Canadians woke up to this. And there's also a bit of a sense of shame I think that we had done such a poor job in telling our history. We had uh, allowed the bonds of the past to erode. Um, Canada was going through a gut-wrenching crisis with uh, Quebec, which was uh, uh, trying to succeed and almost did, almost breaking up the country in 1995. And from that point forward, I argue, Canadians have done a better job in, in thinking about their history and telling the history in allowing veterans to speak, um, the Juno Beach Center, which is now at Juno Beach uh, in Normandy, there was nothing there. It took mm-hmm. veterans to build to raise that money, and they finally built it in two thousand and three. Uh, a shocking absence, I argue, in the book, uh, and now that had become that has become a much more prominent site of uh, commemoration uh, for Canadians, and I think for others, Americans and British and the French, to realize that that Canadians bled for the victory as well. That's an amazing point, Tim, because I've, uh, I follow the Juno Center on Twitter and other socials. I follow the Canadian War Museum. Obviously, I've visited several times Canadian War Museum, as we spoke about when we were offline. I've yet to get to the Juno Beach Center, but I'm sure that'll happen sooner or later. Uh, but seeing those as not only places of educational opportunities, but almost as memorials themselves, has been really interesting to me as well, because I, I remember walking into the Canadian War Museum and being like, Canada's been involved in all this. And, and, then, and then I walked out being like, well, they, they kicked our butts twice for the Americans. <laughs> that's, that's something I got to take home with me. Yeah. But seeing that as almost living memorial landscapes too can make an effect on a, on a population. And you probably see that a lot at the War Museum. Yeah, I'm really lucky, uh, John, to be there. And it had been now 20 years. And, um, you know, before that, there was a war museum that opened in 1942 in Ottawa, but it was a tiny little museum. And I grew up in Ottawa and I used to go every year and I loved it, but nothing ever changed. And um, it was it was not up to museological standards as they had evolved over the 20th century. Um, 
And it, as I recount in the book, again, it was veterans who fought for a new um, new Canadian War Museum. A number of prominent Second World War veterans and, and others from the Cold War who really came together. Um, and this, this is what emerges out of those 1995 um, anniversaries where Canadians woke up to these veterans. Um, we realized they were passing away in larger numbers. Um, their children children of the 1960s and 70s who had also passed through and were aging, I think, with a better sense of their own family history, with a better sense of the country's history, um, and and uh, politicians as well, understanding that we had done a very poor job. And so the War Museum, I was lucky to be a part of that, opened in 2005, uh, May 8th, 2005. And it's been a stunning success, about 500,000 visitors a year. It's in downtown Ottawa. So it's really one of the, the main national museums. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I always feel a great sense of pride um, being there, uh, meeting visitors, uh, touring through people. Um, doing exhibitions. I've done about a dozen exhibitions. And, you know, we, we've been talking, John, you're a public historian. I'm a public historian. Um, you know, I believe Canadians want their history. It's evident at the War Museum. People pay money to come and to learn and to understand and to be moved. And it's the stories we tell there are utterly um, powerful. They, they're they evocative. I see people uh, brought to tears. I, I I see them doing all the things, you know, looking at artifacts, uh, having those intergenerational conversations, um, young school kids going through. Um, we're we're not we're not just a museum. Um, I think of education. We are a museum that really seems to resonate with people, and I I would argue the War Museum is absolutely crucial to understanding the change among Canadians in having a better understanding of of our complicated and contested to come back to your original question, um, history. It, mm -hmm. It's not, it's not always, you know, it's not patriotic uh, hand on your heart, stand behind the flag history. We engage with difficult discussions. We talk about infringements on civil liberties. We talk about um, death and brutality in war. We talk about loss and grief. And yet, as, as you said as well, we, it's not just the bad. Um, you know, it's history, warts and all, but not just the warts. There are stories of great heroics and courage. There are stories of Canadians coming together and being pushed to the limit. There are stories of what happens when they break down from battle stress or shell shock, but also when they push forward and achieve objectives in war on the home front that no one thought was possible. Uh, and, and ultimately, we look at how war has shaped this country and um you just can't understand canadian history just like american history unless you understand the the role of indigenous people and in warfare um the the colonial the, the the european contact wars and how that shaped this country the wars of empire um 1763 we became a british nation um think about the american revolution and uh, sending loyalists north to change the fabric of of canada again injecting uh of thousands of English Canadians and, and Black Canadians. The War of 1812, where if defeat had occurred at the hands of the Americans, we would be American. The 19th century, a period of great turmoil and strife and uh, 
as I argue sometimes, if it hadn't been for the American Civil War, it looked very clear that the Americans with manifest destiny were moving across the continent and were looking to go north. And, uh, mm -hmm. and think about the, the 20th century, Canada fought six wars uh, and, of course, Afghanistan. And so, you know, it would be wrong to say the only way to understand Canadian history is through military history. But it would certainly be wrong to say you don't need to know anything about it because, no, it's a key part of, of what it means to be Canada and the contemporary Canada that we live in today. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. And, and it's not just because you're here, Tim, uh, but I've told people for years that the War Museum is my favorite museum because it, it challenges you to think deeper about things. It's not it's not, uh, you know, this hurrah over the top kind of thing. It's something that has, like you say, it has the good, the bad, and the ugly to it because history is full of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there are times when you're going to be uncomfortable and that's okay. Yeah. Uh, it's a great way to, to grow uh, as, a, as a person. And yeah. uh, Tyler is in the comments and he has a, an interesting question. Uh, was there less commemoration of World War II because World War I is seen as their dads and he goes on war uh, as and they felt guilt to commemorate the Second World War? Uh, was it almost was it almost seen as like the Great War? I guess the way he's saying is it almost seen as like untouchable. We, we'll we'll stick with that, and that's about it. Yeah, good good question, Tyler. And yeah, I think you know just the the dark shadow of the Great War uh, really is cast deep across the country. And uh, within veterans organizations, there's a really interesting struggle, which is similar in American uh, veterans organizations as well. But when uh, you know, the, the Canadian Legion is established in 1925 from a number of different veterans groups, and it becomes the, the most prominent uh, veterans group. Well, all the leadership positions are filled by World War One guys, and then their sons come back. And there's a, there's a, quite a lot of strife there uh, over mm -hmm. traditions and, uh, you know, the, the guys in the trenches saying, you didn't fight a real war. You know, we were on the Somme and Passchendaele. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know. <laughs> Uh, that kind of intergenerational conflict, it took a while to sort out as well. And I've, mm. I've spoken to veterans and, and my book looks at that and tries to explore that. So I do think that there's an element there. Um, and um, I, I think ultimately veterans uh, from the two world wars, they do begin to coalesce in the, in the 60s because they realize in that decade we've been talking about that Canadians writ large have just tuned out, that they don't care anymore about either war. And um, that's that's difficult for um, most of the veterans to take because, of course, those involved in veterans organizations feel a very powerful impulse both to care for their living comrades, but those who fell in war, that real sense of we should not forget them lest we forget and I talk about in the book by the late 60s, um, Remembrance Day in Canada, so November 11th, which is now a, a really prominent day. Uh, one of the newspapers I quote from called it a day of indifference, that Canadians simply did not care. They weren't coming out anymore. And that continues into the 70s and 80s. And that's part of that larger forgetting, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the one thing also that I think uh, a lot of people don't realize is how much in popular culture uh, Canadians are somewhat forgotten. And I'm, I mean, I'm wearing a Dambuster shirt 
and the damn busters movie cuts the canadians out of it yeah they're all they're all british all of yeah. a sudden they're not canadians yeah uh i believe the great escape is another one where yeah. you see their uh, canadians had involvement in that we don't see that uh how about that is concerning to uh you know historical memory social memory and stuff like that because it's almost like you said earlier you may not be seeing it in class but then you go to the movie theater yeah. And it's just like everyone is either British or American or German yeah. <laughs> and maybe maybe French. But, you know, <laughs> for Second World War, sometimes not. Yeah. And Canadians are just kind of, you know, thrown off to the side, sadly, because of that. Yeah, you're exactly right. I talk about that in the book. Um, the irony that during the war itself, Canada had a very robust filmmaking uh, industry through the National Film Board, producing hundreds of films that both explained the war to Canadians, but also portrayed Canadians to the world, uh, including the D-Day landings, the the footage there, the scoop. My wife, Sarah, um, has researched that. And, you know, the tremendous, uh, you know, visual, I think you can probably picture it, the Canadians landing and they're, they're coming out of the, the landing craft. Um, that's some of the most powerful footage out there. And yet after the war, because we failed to tell our story, it is diminished and then forgotten. And, and even in those great blockbuster films and in the book, I mean, I love The Great Escape and I love The Longest Day. Those are movies I watched. But again, you know, as you said, the Canadians were written out and I talk about that. And I, I talk even about a sad, sad story in 1962 when The Longest Day comes out and the Queen's Own Rifles, a Toronto regiment that landed on D-Day, one of the spearhead formations, they... They they go out. They march down to the theater. There's um, there's there's bands. There's speeches, and they go in to see this movie. And there's almost nothing on Canada, mm-hmm. and they they emerge almost in tears. And uh, and the reviews for that I write about in the book. Um, you know, the journalists of the day are kind of lamenting it, and they're they're saying it's a really good film, folks. As it is, it's a classic, as we know. Mm-hmm. But Canadians will be disappointed. And um, and I and I continue that forward to Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers. And I'm not naive enough to say, oh, Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, you need to include the Canadians in your documentary. Right. No, they're they're making a Hollywood film and very successfully or a series in the terms of Band of Brothers and all the power to them, because those two productions alone, we know. Uh, have a tremendous impact on people around the world in re-engaging with World War II to better understand it. Um, um, and yet, and yet, the larger point is that Canada is really not represented. And um, and I and I say in the book, you know, we don't have a Spielberg in Canada, and it's not easy to make films in Canada. Thirty-eight million Canadians, different scale of economy, and all that, and yet we have never tried very hard. Uh, Mm. And that um, one of the interesting things, John, about my book is it's resonated with a lot of people. I've had a lot of people write to me, say, how do we do it? How do we make a film? And uh, will you write the script? And, you know, (laughs) this is great, uh, guys. Um, But I'm I'm a a historian and I'm a curator, um, but I'm not a filmmaker. And uh, and one of the things that we try to do, John, with your show and and me with my books and exhibitions is I want to create the knowledge. I want to want to put it out there for people, but it's other people then maybe to take it and run with it to the next product or the next thing, a social media or a podcast or just a, a great website, uh, something for school kids, for teachers, for curators and archivists, uh, and possibly someday a major uh, documentary. I mean, uh, we need that in Canada. 
it's it's not too late. And um, I, I, I firmly believe Canadians want that as well. So, um, you know, we talked a little bit, John, and you know, at the end of the book, I, I sort of write about the challenges of doing history and that sometimes it can be lonely work and uh, often you can't make a living out of this. Um, but it's important work. You know, it's important because these are important stories. And if you don't tell your own story, don't expect anyone else to do it for you. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of the forgetting in my book, um, these are self-inflicted wounds. Um, and, and a lot of the remaking, which is the, the, the last part of the subtitle, um, the remaking is from individual Canadians who have said, we're going to tell the story. We're going to do the hard work. We're going to explore our family history. We're going to do that genealogy. We're going to go uh, uh, explore uh, the letters that are in the attic. I'm going to try to find out what this medal means. I'm going to go to the War Museum. I'm going to go to the Juno Beach Center. I'm going to uh, watch this documentary. I mean, all of these things, it is a collective. And without getting too preachy, I do think it's important. Uh, I think it's important to know our history, to understand where we come from and and, and how we got here. And then if, if my book has taught me anything, it's to think about what's the next generation going to learn. Mm-hmm. I think, excuse me, I think good historians are great enablers and we, we like to light the fuse and be like, okay, go find out more or, or, or whatever. And, and allowing for accessibility to the, to the narrative is, is huge. And I think that uh, a lot of us understand that when we go into history, it's almost like you're going to have a vow of poverty for for a while, but it's those messages that you get from people like you talked about at the beginning where people are like, well, I didn't know this, or you've inspired me to go this route in life. Uh, the Canadian War Museum inspired me to go back get my public history degree and and so on and so forth, because that's personal for me. And I know it's personal for other people, or I didn't know my grandfather did this. I didn't know my grandmother was a CWAC. You know, I, that is really um, more gratification than you know, uh, the, a million dollar contract to write a screenplay or something yeah. like that. Although that'd be nice. I'm hey, just, it wouldn't be bad. I'm available, Tom Hanks, but yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know. But you know, John, I think you've hit on something important there. It's, it's family history, isn't it? It's um, we all have family history. We don't all have someone who served in the war. I had a grandfather who flew in bomber command. So that was always a, an area of interest for me, but I had another grandfather who was a pacifist and um, that too has interested me. It wasn't easy to be a pacifist uh, during the Second World War uh, in any country. And, um, you know, I didn't have uh, anybody who served in my direct family in the First World War, although my wife had had a a descendant who was killed and we visited um, the battlefields. We saw his name on the Menin Gate. That was a very powerful experience just to be a part of that, that that visceral feeling. And I think uh, as I have been doing public history for 25 years now that there there really are many ways for us to connect. Uh, often it comes through formal schooling for good or for ill. But I think we all remember one of those uh, history teachers who, you know, was just a cut above, right? Who who could just fire you up with amazing stories and ways to engage with the past. Um, and and then there's all the other things in our lives that help to connect us. And, and I see more and more family being one of those people wanting to know their roots, 
Now, frankly, a 24-year-old who's just come out of university and an engineering degree, that's probably not the first thing on their minds. But that's okay. You come to the War Museum, you learn something, you watch the film, you listen to this podcast, and it's cumulative. It builds over time. And, and when we do have those slow moments in our life, and they're fewer and fewer these days, <laughs> uh, maybe there are opportunities there to talk to your elders, to, 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 to look through those letters, to, to think about it. And it doesn't always have to be someone who served in uniform. I mean, um, anybody who lived through the Second World War was affected by it uh, or, or other time periods. And uh, I, I do think a family history is a, is a, is a way for us uh, and often a motivator for us to, to find out more. Yeah. And, and even amongst veterans, I found that some of them are like, oh, I only was in the quartermaster. I wasn't on the front line. It's like, but that's still important. And, and, and we see that with people who didn't serve where they're like, oh, I, I, I didn't serve in World War II, so I have little knowledge or whatever. But they have a, li a living experience of it, yeah. which is yeah. still an important story. And, it is. Uh, in my books, I've interviewed veterans for a long time. And at the War Museum, we have an official program to interview and capture these oral histories. Because as we said, you know, we're losing them. And right. if you're never going to get them back. And we're losing veterans every single day. From, from the World Wars, from Korea, from early Cold War, you know, there are Afghanistan veterans in Canada who went on the first tour in 2001 or 2002 who could be 50 years old now uh, or older. Um, and so that's, you know, we need to keep this in mind that history is a precious resource. And once it's gone, it's gone. That lived history. And I do think um, it's it's something we need to work at. And that, too, is a part of the book and the title, The Fight. Yeah. The Fight is is the interpretations. Thank you. There you go. There it's it called The Fight Against Apathy, and it's the fight against forgetting, and it's the fight against um, waiting too long, waiting too long to do the things we want to do and ask the questions that we need to ask. Yeah. Yeah, it's and uh, some of us have been guilty of that when we have a, a grandparent who tells us things when we're an eight year old and we can't understand it. And then we're like, I wish I had that grandparent back to tell me all that because now I understand it, you know, yeah. or now I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, I've personally been involved in that. Neil, thank you for being on. There you go, Tim. Tim makes me a better Canadian. My best you oh, both. Well, this is uh, Neil you. Orford. What he's a terrific guy. He is a former teacher, uh, a, a gifted Canadian. Um, who who has really made it his mission, um, and a shout out to to uh, all the teachers out there mm -hmm. to um, to to share these important stories. Uh, Neil talked me into giving a, a lecture to his uh, high school at one point, uh, and I enjoyed that. And um, you know, it takes champions. History takes champions. Mm -hmm. um, Neil and his group, Defining Moments, um, have done a great job in, in finding a way to connect with people, to tell those stories, to show those photographs. Uh, you know, John, you and I, we deal with history all the time. But for some people, just to see a historic photograph from 100 years ago, um, that's an amazing thing, right? I mm -hmm. mean, to think th this thing is 100 years old from the First World War or, you know, this uniform from the Fenian raids of 1866. I mean, whoa, that's, right. that blows my mind. How did it survive? Mm -hmm. um, why did it survive? What's the story here? How many generations of people had to care for those objects? Um, and, and 
to make it to a museum or to still be in your attic or to not have the moths eat away at it. And um, sometimes I find that amazing. And I love working at the War Museum and seeing the objects. There's nothing quite like being able to pick up a, a Bren gun or to see a real Victoria Cross. We don't touch them. Uh, but, you know, to have a Victoria <laughs> Cross a foot away from you, to to read the letters of a soldier from Normandy writing home and and they stop on the 8th of August, 1944, and you go, oh, darn, and you realize he was killed that day. Mm -hmm. um, this is the stuff of history. It's very powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, Rob McGuire is a question, but going, I want to piggyback off that real quick with you, Tim. Uh, you, you write, and uh, towards the end of the book, you write, uh, history can be dangerous. Governments are often afraid of it and the passions that it stirs up. Politicians prefer heritage, a much more anodyne reading of what came before and more celebratory than critical. And you go on to say, it is the professional historians who tend to do the heavy lifting in the archives to reclaim what has been forgotten, even if they're narrowly specialized and little read articles and scholarly books rarely reach the general public. And I really think that, you know, you have experience in the archives, I have experience in the archives. So many archivists do thankless work or they're not thanked enough in the books that they help create. They don't they know they help create it, but yeah. the public doesn't understand that they help create it. And sometimes the authors forget, too. And I, I'm so glad that with your experience as an archivist and mine, uh, we know that the people in the dark recesses of the archives are doing so much good work out there. And you see it you see it at the Kenny War Museum a lot. Yeah, very lucky, and I, I love to spend time in the archives. It, it's where the discoveries happen. It's there's there's nothing quite like reading through an operational report from 77 years ago, and and um, looking at that photograph or a work of art. Um, it's really powerful, and and it's it is those archivists. I'm a former archivist. My wife's an archivist, and uh, we're, we're we're a bit of a house of history. My dad was an archivist. Um, wow. But it really is. And, you know, and I'm glad you read that paragraph because it keeps going and it talks about the impact of archivists and curators and teachers and uh, genealogists and uh, and filmmakers. And it's sort of a, it, it takes it takes a lot of people to, to keep our history alive, to keep it going, to make sure these stories don't disappear. And uh and I've always felt these are important aspects. And to maybe come back to the initial, uh, you know, statement you had made that, that often governments are afraid. The state is afraid of what will be revealed. And I have always been maybe naive about this, but I say, you know, we need to tell the truth. We need to present it as it was. I don't want to create a militaristic view of the world wars. no. These were young men and sometimes women, ordinary, coming from farms and factories, communities across the country, put into harm's way, undergoing stress and strain we could never possibly know, suffering through fear and, and exhaustion and deprivation, and yet more often than not, finding ways to keep moving forward. And, and that has always amazed me. And we need to tell these stories uh, in all of their uh, brutality and, and heroics. And um, and I hope others agree with that, you know, that, that this is part of it. Um, yeah. It's part of that constant reevaluation. Right, right.
Uh, Rob, I'm going to get to your question now. So thank you so much. Rob, from my friend in, in Canada as well. Quick question. I just had a look at the picture on the cover of Dr. Cook's book. I had no idea that Canada had commandos. Can you please comment on the Canadian commandos? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of an odd photograph. It's yeah. a beach. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, Royal Canadian uh, Navy beach commando. And, um, um, it, it, it's, ex, you know, experts like you, um, can pick that up. And, uh, we had a parachute uh, battalion in the war, um, and, um, you know, various, uh, you know, one thinks of maybe first special service force, the devil's brigade, uh, which was an interesting unit, but this is, uh, this is a photograph from uh, Normandy in the early days. And uh, part of that beach commando force. And uh, one of the things that always strikes me as interesting, I've just curated an exhibition at the War Museum called Forever Changed. It looks at the many stories of individual Canadians, just how many units there were. We often think of Army, Navy, Air Force. But then you think Air Force, you have fighters and you have bombers and you have Coastal Command, you have Transport Command, and then you have ground crews. And, you know, you keep going and I think I I saw at one point there's over 2,000 individual Canadian units during the war. Uh, it, it, you know, as John said, in logistics and in transport and in uh, all aspects of of uh, sharp from the sharp end all the way back. And I think that's really interesting that um, that we often and and maybe I'm guilty of this. Uh, you know, focus on combat units, but. Uh, there's no combat unless you get the shells there or the bullets and you get the wounded off the battlefield and that kind of thing. So uh, I might be a little more attuned to that because, uh, John, I'm, I'm working on a new book on war and medicine in the First World War and the oh, idea of force uh, protection. And, uh, you know, we're all coming through and have survived this, uh, hopefully, uh, this terrible pandemic and thinking about a major health crisis and how that impacts public health afterwards. And, it, you know, in the First World War, um, incredible evolutions and revolutions in medical care, mm -hmm. but half of all Canadian doctors served overseas, and they a third of nurses they come back and then they, you know, they they go back into the public health care system, which is forever changed by the war. So these fascinating stories they, they never stop for me. Um, I, continue to interest me and uh, and hopefully the the book buying public. Yeah, well, I hope when you complete that one, you'll you'll come back on the live stream and, and chat. September of uh, twenty two. All right. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll probably still be going. Uh, with what I do. Uh, but everyone, I did put a link in the uh, in the comment section on both YouTube and Facebook for Tim's new book, The Fight for History. You're definitely going to want to pick this one up. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And as someone who, as I said before, has seen Canada as his second home, it's good to find out more about what uh, f families of my friends who are there have gone through. And it's been great to uh, showcase uh, Canadians this week for Normandy week, uh, because, you know, we're, we're often in day with American or British. It's time to give Canada some props here. And Tim, thank you so much for being on. I, I really do appreciate your time and, uh, I can't wait for book number 14. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> appreciate that. Thanks so much for doing what you're doing. And, um, and thank you uh, everyone out there for, for watching. Thanks everyone.